Hey friends, welcome to Advent Conspiracy week number three. And for those of you who uh, want to keep track, 20 more sleeps until Christmas Day. Uh, well, we began this teaching series, Advent Conspiracy, back on November 14th, and the theme for part one was spend less. Not don't spend, spend less. Spend less on those gifts that lack meaning. Spend less on those gifts where we spend money simply because we've been sucked into the economic Christmas machinery where uh, advertisers and marketers and uh, corporations uh, use the language of Christmas, uh, hijack the language of Christmas to get us to spend more. Well, what if we spend less? What if we spend less on those meaningless gifts? And what if we take that money that we don't spend and pool it and, and assign it somewhere great, like our benevolent fund, which is a, which is a fund here at Sobel Church that is used exclusively to meet needs in Jesus' name. It's a beautiful thing. Well, last week we had uh, part two of Advent Conspiracy, and the theme of part two was give more. And uh, what we meant by give more was, what if we allowed our gift giving this Christmas 2021 to be informed by the way that God gave the gift of his son, Jesus? Because in Jesus, God gives us the gift of his presence. Emmanuel, God with us. And so what would it look like if we were to give the gift of our presence to someone or to someone's, the, the gift of time spent? And in Jesus, God gives us a gift that is personal. The angel said to the shepherds, uh, to you, I bring good news, which will be for all people. It's for everybody, but I'm bringing it to you. This is this is personal. And so he said, what would it look like this Christmas if we intentionally gave gifts that were really personal, maybe even homemade or handmade? And then Jesus, God gives us a gift that is absolutely priceless. Jesus is our, our savior. The angel said to Joseph, you'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He's our sin forgiver. He's our savior. How do you put a price on forgiveness? It's priceless. And is there somebody that you can give the gift of forgiveness uh, to this Christmas season? And so Jesus, our savior, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, he came and he told us how to live and he showed us how to live. He told us how to live, you know, saying things like, um, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then he showed us how to live by laying down his life for us. And he calls us friend. Humble love, our humble savior, our humble king. See, when Jesus came, um, it wasn't with all shock and awe. Jesus didn't come kicking in the front door. No, his arrival was gentle and humble 
and loving and poor. He came in, in the most unexpected way. Upside down, uh, you might say. Humble love. What a gift. What a gift. By the way, have you uh, unwrapped the gift of Jesus? Because just like any gift, um, the gift of Jesus is one that we need to receive, accept, open, own. Because a gift that is unopened really misses the point. A gift that is unopened is a gift not received. And as we read the New Testament, we continually find um, wording that helps us to see that the gift of Jesus, this gift of salvation is a gift that is to be received, must be received. In fact, John says it this way in John chapter 1 and verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of salvation in Jesus, a gift, a free gift of God that we must receive. Well, this leads us uh, to today in part three of Advent Conspiracy, which is to uh, love all, to love all. Now, that's a big theme. Uh, we could we could talk a lot about what it means to love all, but for the sake of time, we're going to narrow it down today. And uh, specifically, we're going to focus on what it is to love the poor, loving the poor. Um, I, I, I feel like I don't need to, um, you know, talk about, say, loving uh, our families, because most of us, um, maybe all of us who are engaging with the sermon today, we don't need to be convinced to love our family, we do. And uh, similarly, we don't necessarily, as Jesus followers, need to be somehow convinced to love our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, we do. Uh, in fact, you know, I've been around Sobel Church now about six months, and um, in those six months, I've been so impressed and blessed to see people in Sobel Church expressing love one for the other. And um, it gives me a little sense about how Paul might have felt when he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. Paul said these words, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 9. He says, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. So Paul basically says to this church in uh, Thessalonica, you know, I really don't need to uh, try and convince you to love each other. You're doing it. You're doing a great job at it. Just go ahead and do it more and more. And that's, that's what I feel about Sobel Church. You're doing a great job loving one another. Let's just do it more and more. And so what we want to uh, look at specifically this morning uh, is loving the poor, loving the poor. Now, I know that term poor is, um, it's not politically correct. And maybe it's a little bit 
jarring for our modern ears to hear that uh, word. Um, probably the more politically correct term is under-resourced, which is a perfectly um, helpful term. You know, a, a family, for instance, who utilizes a food bank can be said to be under-resourced, and that's true, and that's accurate. But for this talk today, we're going to use that old word poor, um, mostly because that's the word that we find in the scripture uh, most often. Under-resource is a great term, but we're going to use this, this old term, poor. And to begin with, we, was, we just want to put it on the table that, um, you know, we acknowledge and we understand that we're all poor. Um, and Paul, Paul helps us to see that in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, when he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And so Jesus leaves the, the glory and the splendor of heaven and becomes poor for our sake, humbled himself, obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that we who are spiritually poor in Christ can become spiritually rich. And so there's a sense in which we are all poor. We're all spiritually poor. In fact, we're spiritually bankrupt. We show up on planet Earth entirely spiritually bankrupt. We have zero spiritual equity. We lack any resources whatsoever to somehow save ourselves. But Jesus, uh, full of generous grace. And, uh, you know, Tammy read Philippians 2 for us last week, and it's a beautiful passage. Uh, Jesus willingly leaves the, the splendor uh, of heaven and comes into this fallen framework of earth, and he becomes a human being. Um, and, the, and the fancy theological word is incarnation, God in flesh, God with, with flesh, with skin. And that Philippians 2 passage says that in, in doing so, Jesus emptied himself. The Greek word is kenosis, he, he emptied himself. Of what did Jesus empty himself when he became a human being? Did he empty himself of his deity? Well, no, Jesus was fully God and fully man. What he emptied himself of was his independent usage of his divine attributes. He becomes a servant dies a criminal death, and in so doing, he lavishes grace upon us so that we become rich because of what he has done for us. And so we are uh, spiritually poor, we are spiritually bankrupt. The scripture says we're lost, we're dead in sin, we're separated from God, but Jesus gave himself for us and in so doing, lavishes grace upon us. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's the gift of God. That's the free gift of God, of salvation in Jesus, but it's a gift that must be received. What Jesus did on the cross is sufficient for the whole world to be saved, but efficient for those who receive that gift. It's a gift that we must receive. We receive it. We unwrap it. Uh, we open it up. We own it. We embrace it. Uh, 
And so we could say that God's heart is with the poor, which is all of us, all of us spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt, and God's heart is for all of us. He so loved the world. But there's another sense in which God's heart is with the poor. His heart is with the marginalized. His heart is with those on the periphery. His heart is with the, the poor, the under-resourced. The heart of God is with those who are just barely hanging on. And I want us to see um, today from the scripture that how we treat the poor among us, uh, God takes that very personally. You know, in Luke chapter three, we read of the account of Jesus' baptism. He's baptized in the Jordan by Paul. And um, that really is kind of the initiation to his public ministry. One of, the, one of the characteristics of baptism for us as well when we're baptized as followers of Jesus is it's an initiation um, into a life of serving Jesus. And so Jesus is baptized in Luke chapter 3, and you can hear God in that um, in that scene saying, this is my beloved son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And so Jesus is baptized. This is the initiation of his public ministry. And the very next thing that happens, and we see it right at the start of Luke chapter four, Luke describes that Jesus is led by the spirit into the wilderness. And uh, he's there for 40 days and he fasts and he prays and he's confronted by the enemy. And the enemy brings temptation after temptation after temptation. And, and Jesus responds to the enemy with, by saying, um, it is written, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. Um, and so that there's this 40 days and there's this temptation. And then um, the very next thing that we see Jesus doing um, is going into Nazareth. But just before I talk about that, it just, it occurs to me that um, Jesus in his public ministry surrendered himself to and utilized the exact same resources that you and I have as followers of Christ. Jesus surrendered himself to the will of God. He was led by the spirit of God and he utilized the word of God. You know, so often we hear Jesus saying in the gospels, um, you know, everything I do, my father in heaven tells me. Everything I say, my father tells me to say. In fact, on one occasion, Jesus said, my, my food, my sustenance is to do the will of the father. So Jesus surrendered himself to the will of the father. He was as, as we noted in Luke, Luke describes him as led by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit, and he responded to the enemy with the Word of God. The will of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God. Those are the exact same resources that you and I have at our disposal. So when Jesus left the glories of heaven and became man, Philippians 2 says he emptied himself. He emptied himself of the independent usage of his divine attributes, and he willingly surrendered himself to utilize the same resources that we have. So he's baptized, which is the initiation of his public ministry. He's led by the Spirit, prays fast, uh, faces the enemy. 
And then in Luke 4, he goes to Nazareth and he goes to the synagogue. And he, uh, in the synagogue, takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he unrolls it to the place that we know as Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And he reads these words. And, and this is notable because these are really the first words of his public ministry. And Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. God's heart is with the poor. Yes, with the poor spiritually, which is all of us, but in a special and particular way with the poor who are the under-resourced, those with unmet needs. And it is precisely because God's heart is with the poor, with the under-resourced, that we sought to fill backpacks. Uh, back at the beginning of the school year, we had a goal to fill 30 backpacks for families uh, who were in need to help kids be resourced to be able to go to school. We had a goal of 30 backpacks and we filled 36, which was wonderful. It's because God's heart is with the poor that we fill shoeboxes. We had a goal to fill 30 shoeboxes, we filled 58. It's because God's heart is with the poor, with the un under-resourced, with, with uh, people with unmet needs, that we uh, collected winter coats for the homeless. And our, we had a goal to collect 30 winter coats, and we collected 59, which is beautiful. It's because God's heart is with the poor, with those with unmet needs, with the hungry, uh, that we are in the process right now of collecting 900 cans of, um, of meat to go into 450 Christmas hampers that are being um, distributed by the Salvation Army in, in Wyerton. It's because God's heart is with the poor that we have a benevolent fund. Um, God's heart is with those in need. And we reported uh, last Sunday that year to date, we have dispersed about $30,000 from our benevolent fund and the associated uh, Good Works Fund. It's because God's heart is with the poor, with those on the margins. This is why we engage in missions. Um, and uh, in, in places where there are great needs, places like, like Liberia, like Cuba, like Mexico, and uh, like Haiti. And so year to date, we have dispersed about $60,000 um, in, in missions. And, and I mentioned Haiti, and one of the reasons why we engage in Haiti is because it is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. God's heart is with the poor. God's heart is with orphans. That's why we engage with Tai Tu Gardens, because God's heart is with the orphans. God's heart is with the, with the hungry, with the oppressed. And when we help, we honor God. That's why we do it. Proverbs 14.31 says, Those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but helping the poor honors him. You see, God takes it very personally how we treat the poor. His heart is with the poor. You oppress the poor, you dishonor God. You help the poor, you honor God. It is possible to contribute 
to the oppression of the poor by doing nothing. Let me say that again. It is possible to contribute to the oppression of the poor by doing nothing. It's possible to sin by doing nothing. James helps us to, to see that, James 4.17. Really, he urges us here. He says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Bishop Desmond Tutu says, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. We had read for us uh, earlier in the service uh, a passage in Matthew chapter 25, and it's a, it's a phenomenal passage of scripture that pictures Jesus at his second coming. Not his first coming when he comes in humility, but in his second coming, when he comes in power and authority, uh, seated on a throne, when he comes in the, and the, um, you know, the mouths of the kings of the earth will just be silenced uh, in his presence. He will come and he will exercise perfectly righteous judgment. And so that passage, um, um, Jesus um, identifies those who will inherit his kingdom. And in, in the picture that's painted in Matthew chapter 25, those who inherit God's kingdom are pictured as sheep and those who don't inherit God's kingdom are pictured as goats and the, the sheep or the righteous as they're called are gathered to the right hand of God and the, and the goats are gathered to the left hand of God. And Jesus says to those on his right, the sheep, the, the righteous, he says, welcome, come and enjoy the inheritance set for you. And then he says, why? Come and enjoy it because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was a stranger, a foreigner, a, a, a refugee, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you, you gave me clothing. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. When I was sick, you cared for me. And then the righteous say to him, well, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and give you hospitality? When did we um, see you naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you in prison and visit you? When did we see you sick and care for you? And Jesus said, when you did it to the least, you did it to me. It's so important to hear Jesus say that the number one characteristic of those who inherit the kingdom is the feeding of the hungry. It's the first thing out of the chute. It's the first thing that Jesus says identifies the righteous, feeding the hungry. And Jesus said feeding the hungry is like feeding him. He identifies with the hungry. He identifies with the thirsty. Jesus identifies with the homeless. He identifies with the refugee. He identifies with the naked, the imprisoned, the oppressed, the marginalized, the least, the last, the left out, the, the naked. That's where God's heart is. One of my very favorite verses of scripture in the New Testament is Galatians 4.4, 4, which says, 
But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. When the time was right. See, the arrival of Jesus was in God's perfect timing and in God's perfect way. I said last week that if I were to write the script very differently, I would have had Jesus born in Jerusalem, perhaps in the king's palace or perhaps in the temple. I would have had an ambulance on standby in the press corps waiting to do a news release and uh, uh, festivities and lights and music. And... But God wrote the script very differently and it wouldn't have occurred to me to have Jesus born in a barn in a village 10 kilometers south of the city with the hospital. Wouldn't have occurred to me to have Jesus born with animals, with no lights and no pageantry. It wouldn't have occurred to me to have Jesus born, Emmanuel, God with us, to have him born with really nobody paying attention except some pagan stargazers and some shepherds. Jesus was Poor. When you think of the poor, what do you think of? Well, Jesus was poor. Jesus was homeless. When you think of homeless people, what do you think of? Well, Jesus was homeless. He entered this world in poverty. And the cries of Jesus from the manger are the first audible cries of God's solidarity with the poor. Born in a barn with animals and warm manure and cold breezes and scratchy hay. And you know, this is the time of year when we see lots of nativities and maybe some of you, um, maybe in the room where you're sitting right now, you've got, a, you've got a nativity display set up as part of your uh, Christmas decorating. And we see nativities on people's front lawns. And indeed in, here in our church building, we have uh, probably multiple nativities uh, set up. And so many of them are just so beautiful and, and rustic and charming. And, um, you know, some of them are just kind of romantic. But there was nothing charming at all about the arrival of Jesus. We sometimes picture baby Jesus, you know, wrapped in, in a nice fleecy blanket, really warm. Um, many historians suggest that what Jesus was actually wrapped in was the underwear of his parents. That Mary and Joseph were so poor that the only thing that they had to keep Jesus from freezing was their own undergarments, which they tore into strips and wrapped the baby. Mary and Joseph were absolutely dirt poor. You know, that verse that we just looked at, Galatians 4.4, when the time was right, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. We don't think about that all the time, that Jesus was born in an Old Testament context. Uh, we sometimes think the New Testament begins with, you know, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Um, the New Testament begins not with the birth of Jesus, but with the blood of Jesus. You know, in, in communion, we often uh, repeat the words of Jesus, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. The New Testament is inaugurated at the cross. And so Jesus is born in an Old Testament context. And, and as such, Mary and Joseph, as his, as his parents, have some 
responsibilities according to the law. And in fact, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 12, it's clearly stated that on the eighth day after the birth of a baby boy, uh, the parents are to go to the temple and they are to offer a sacrifice. And here's what that sacrifice is to be. This is Leviticus 12.6. A one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove. And so, as we would expect, Jesus is born. Uh, and when he's eight days old, Mary and Joseph, we see this in Luke 2, they take him to the temple and they offer, uh, here's, here's what we read. This is Luke 2, 24. They offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And you say, well, wait a minute. Didn't we just read that the appropriate offering was a one-year-old lamb and either a turtle dove or a pigeon? And that's exactly what we read. But what we didn't read was that the Levitical law made allowance for the poorest of the poor. If you were so poor that you couldn't even come up with a lamb, then there was an allowance that you could offer two pigeons instead. Here's what that uh, exception clause looks like. This is Leviticus chapter 12 and verse eight. If a woman cannot afford to bring a lamb, she must bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so this is the offering that Mary and Joseph make, two pigeons. The offering of the poorest of the poor. Mary and Joseph are poor. Jesus is born into abject poverty, wrapped up perhaps in the underwear of his parents to keep from freezing. When God chose to be born, he chose to be born this way. You know, Galatians 4.4, when the time was right, God sent forth his son. Jesus arrives in God's perfect timing and in God's perfect way, in such a way that it is unmistakable for us to not notice that God casts his vote for the poor, that God casts his vote for the hungry. You know, I was reading some stats this week um, posted by the United Nations, and this was a report dated just last month, November, of uh, 2021. And it talked about the fact that on planet Earth, there are 7.9 billion people. And of those 7.9 billion people, 957 million do not have sufficient food. That's one in eight. One in eight people on planet Earth will go to bed tonight without sufficient food to be healthy. And you know, every day on planet Earth, every day people die and people are born, but there's a net increase of about 200,000 every day, every 24 hours, 200,000 more mouths to feed. You know, to think of the fact that 957 million people will go to bed tonight without sufficient food, that is such a staggering need that it can paralyze us into inactivity. 
In fact, Mother Teresa said, if I look at the masses, I will never act. If I look at the one, I will. Dallas Willard similarly said, the first act of love is the paying of attention to someone. Sometimes we don't pay attention. And sometimes because of the sheer volume of the need, we are inattentive and inactive. And being inactive is to contribute to the oppression of the hungry and the poor. The first act of love is paying attention. And Jesus points out in that Matthew 25 passage that the very first identifier of a kingdom person is that they feed the hungry. And you know, food is so basic, right? Here's something that I'm learning. I'm learning that when a person is hungry, they really can't hear what you say. And I, I said uh, recently in one of our services, it might've been one of our in-person services, but that as a dad, um, if my family is hungry, there's going to be very little else entering into my thinking other than providing food for them. But when somebody no longer has to worry about their next meal, they might be open to other conversations. They may be open to strategic conversations about ways to climb out of poverty. They may be open to conversations about Jesus. But when somebody is hungry, it's pretty tough to strategize. And when somebody's hungry, they really don't care how much you know about theology. You know, and we in the church sometimes wonder why when we try to address sociological needs with theological answers, we sometimes wonder why that falls on deaf ears. We sometimes wonder why the church in Canada is, is um, in decline. But when people know that you care about them enough to provide food for them in Jesus' name, or when people uh, understand that you care enough about them that you meet them at the point of their need, whatever their need might, might be, and you meet them at that point of need with, with tangible ways of helping, well, then they might be open to a conversation about Jesus. Last week when we talked about um, give more, we talked about the, the Roman Empire, and we talked about their year-end um, celebration that began December 17th and went for about a week called Saturnalia, their worship of the god Saturn, the god of farming, the god of agriculture. And of course, we know that in the Roman Empire, there were all kinds of gods and goddesses. In fact, one of the goddesses that they worshipped was the, god, the goddess of plenty. One of the gods they worshipped was a god named Consus, the God of the storage bin. <laughs> Friends, we don't worship Consus. We don't worship a God who stores. We worship Jehovah, a God who gives. We worship Jehovah Jireh, a God who provides. We don't worship the God of the storage bin. We don't worship the God of the full closet or the stuffed basement. We don't worship a God whose attic is full of things that he won't give away just in case he needs them. We worship a God who gives, a God who is generous, whose heart 
is with the poor, with the hungry, with the, the marginalized, with the mentally ill, with the lonely, with the addicted, with the homeless, with the abused, with the oppressed, with the left out. And so just at the right time, in God's perfect time, and in God's perfect way, humble King Jesus arrives. Well, let me, let me close with this, and then we'll move on to the next uh, part of our worship service today. There's a, there's a time described in the Gospels when the disciples of Jesus were arguing amongst themselves as to who was the greatest. And I'm so moved by how Jesus responded to that. He didn't scold them. In fact, he didn't say anything to them. He just very quietly got up and went and got a basin and filled that basin with water. And he dropped his robe and put a towel around his waist, got down on his hands and knees and washed the stinky, dirty feet of the disciples. This is Emmanuel, God with us. This is our Christ, the Messiah, the humble King. On hands and knees, feet, on hands and knees, washing feet. This is Jesus. This is the one who, sp who spoke and the worlds, the, the galaxies uh, flew into existence. This is... This is Jesus who imagined the sun. This is Jesus who invented the scent of a rose. And where is he on hands and knees washing feet? Humble love, self-sacrificial love. This is our humble king. And so our call today is a call to love all. But we want to begin where Christ began, with humble, humble love. We want to begin where Christ began, by, by expressing solidarity with the poor, with the marginalized, with the under-resourced. And so two weeks from today, on Sunday, December 19th, we're going to receive an offering for the Benevolent Fund, a fund that we said is specifically set apart to meet needs in Jesus' name. And let's see this as just simply one small step towards not merely celebrating the birth of Jesus, but one small step toward living it out. One way to come and adore him. Christ, our humble King.